Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of them believed and turned to the Lord. And they sent out Barnabas to go through as far as Antioch, who, having arrived, seeing the grace of God, rejoiced and exhorted all with purpose of heart to abide in the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and with a large crowd of people who were added to the church. And he went away to Tarsus to seek Saul, and having found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was with them for a whole year that they gathered together in an assembly and taught a large crowd. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Thank you, Leslie. One of the unanticipated treats in living in Squim is seeing the geese fly. I know some of you despise them because of the copious amounts of mess they make in our parks, but I love them. Our former home decades ago in St. Mary's, Idaho, was bordered by some of America's most scenic wetlands. One of the lakes right near our house was on the migration route of Trumpeter Swan, and the sight of thousands of them alighting on the water or taking to the air was truly magnificent. This time of the year, they will be coming through. I love watching the big birds in the air. One of my bucket list dreams is to see the great Sand Hill Crane migration, and John Gatchett has promised to take me there someday. Then after Idaho, we moved to Maine for 20 years, and Maine is really not on the way to anywhere for people or for birds. But here, we have swan and geese. Like some other migratory birds, geese fly in a distinctive V formation. That's because the uplift created by the bird's wing as it pumps the air provides a little bit of lift for the bird following close behind and to the side. Of course, you know that. But did you know that flying in a V formation, by doing that, the whole flock can fly almost twice as far than if each bird flew on its own? That's a pretty good illustration of how the church should work, isn't it? Whenever a goose falls out of formation, it suddenly feels the increased drag and resistance of trying to go it alone and soon gets back into its place to take advantage of the lifting power of the bird directly ahead. When the lead goose tires, he or she will fall back into the V and another bird flies point. They trade off doing the most demanding job. And that's another illustration that we might take to heart. There's no sin in a person saying, hey, I'm a little tired. I could use a little break, especially when he or she has been working pretty hard. Nominating committee will soon be coming. We need to think about that. But those who haven't been working quite so hard should willingly come forward. Geese are pretty amazing. They can live to be 25 years old. They can weigh up to 20 pounds, 
and they can fly nonstop for over 24 hours, covering more than 1,500 miles. Try that in your Tesla. They have been spotted by airline pilots at altitudes as high as 29,000 feet, where you would pass out and or die in minutes from lack of oxygen. And get this. Whenever a goose gets sick or is wounded by a gunshot or something and falls out, two geese will, will voluntarily drop out with it and follow it down to protect it and stay with it until it either dies or is ready to fly again. Geese mate for life. They're loyal to each other. Somehow they understand that their survival is dependent on their sticking together. I mean, if we have... Any goose sense, the same sense that God gave to them, you know, we, we would treat each other that way too. But one of the unique things about geese is that when they fly, they do what? They honk. Yeah, swan don't do that. No, cranes don't, but geese do. People who study geese still don't know exactly why they do this. You'd think, from an efficiency point of view, if you were going to fly that far, that high, for that long, and spend such enormous amounts of energy doing it, you'd keep your trap shut and use all your energy for flapping your wings. But they don't. And you can hear the big flock from miles away. The best guess is that they honk in order to stick together. Through the darkness of night or in the fog, they are not deterred by lack of visibility. They know where they're going, and probably they honk to help each other stay in the most efficient position and maintain integrity of formation. But it's also been said that they honk to encourage the ones out front to keep going and not slow down. The way is long, but we can do this. You can do this. Keep going. Don't slow down. Boy, do I love to hear a whole flock of, flock of them coming in the fall, wings pumping the air, straining for altitude, practicing up for their epic journey. This morning we're going to think about an absolutely essential ministry of the church that we often overlook, the ministry of encouragement. And we're going to do it by looking at the life of one of the unsung heroes of the New Testament, a man called Barnabas. I told Colette I was going to preach on encouragement today, and I asked her if I could have some of her material from a talk she gave years ago. Um, and she is one of my favorite preachers. I live with her. She says, yeah, you know, we share. We share with each other when we need to. So some of what I'm going to share with you today comes from her. Woven into the fabric of the book of Acts is the quiet yet colorful life of a man only superficially known to most of us. When we think of the book of Acts, it's the heavy hitters that come to mind. Peter and Paul, James and Silas, Timothy and Apollos. But without Barnabas, the history of the whole New Testament might have been quite different. In fact, Barnabas wasn't even his real name, as most of you probably know. His real name was Joseph, and he hailed from Cyprus. His name bespoke his Jewish ancestry. Barnabas was his nickname, Bar-Nabus. 
Bar, as you know, means the sun in Hebrew or Aramaic. Nabus comes from the word meaning to speak prophetically, probably in the context of encouragement. So his nickname means son of encouragement. And in those days, to be called a son of something meant that you were like something. You were like something. Remember, Jesus had nicknames for James and John. Sons of thunder, he called them, because they were quick-tempered, loud, and explosive, like thunder. Imagine having the nickname Son of Encouragement or Daughter of Encouragement. That's what his friends called him. He was a guy with a warm, compassionate heart towards people who needed to be encouraged. He had a reputation for coming alongside of people, sketchy people even, with consolation, comfort, and encouragement. If you look up his name in the Greek lexicon, you will find that the root comes from the word parakletos. Anybody remember who else in the New Testament is called parakletos? The Holy Spirit, that's right. Acts 11.24 describes Barnabas as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and he was evangelistic. Evidently, the Holy Spirit filled Barnabas so completely that they could share the same name. We first meet Barnabas in Acts chapter 4. The fledgling church has exploded into existence, but for many of them, times are hard. Many of the new believers are persecuted, hard-pressed, and some of them are financially broke. To become a follower of Jesus in the very early New Testament church means they will be financially marginalized by the Jews who throw them out of the synagogues and blacklist them in the marketplace. Verses 32 to 36 of Acts, the fourth chapter, describe how the members of the early church would sometimes pool their resources so that no one would starve. The wealthy among them would liquidate an asset and bring the proceeds to the church where they would be distributed among anyone who had need. Verse 36 says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, who the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Here's what's interesting about this. Luke adds this little detail. He says that Joseph was a Levite from Cyprus. Why do you suppose he put that little detail in there? Well, what do you know about Levites? They didn't have a lot of land because they had no ancestral inheritance among the tribes, remember? So when Barnabas sells this land, it's not like he has lots of it to sell. This is likely his only real estate holding in the world, yet here he is selling it so new Christians won't starve as a result of their choice to follow Jesus. Imagine that. As the poker expression puts it, he was all in for the church. He didn't hold back. He didn't hedge his bets. So right out of the blocks, we learn he was a financial encourager. He put his money where his mouth was. Next mention of his name is in Acts chapter 9. But to understand the significance of what happens here, you have to think about another man named Paul. And you have to remember that before he was Paul, he was Saul, one of the most brutal and feared persecutors of the Christians in the whole New Testament. 
Three times in the book of Acts and once in Galatians, Paul recounts his former life as a violent fanatic who lived for the glory of exterminating Christians. He would drag them off to jail. He approved of their torture, even of their execution. He cheered on the murderers when the Jews stoned Stephen to death. He held their robes while they threw the rocks. To the Galatians, he wrote, You've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church and tried to destroy it. To the Philippians, he bragged as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And even as an old man, Paul was haunted by memories of his violent past. Near the end of his life, he wrote to Timothy. He regretted that he was formerly a blasphemer and a violent aggressor, a violent aggressor. But then one day, on the road to Damascus, on the way to drag some more Christians off to prison, Jesus met Saul and knocked him off his horse and appeared to him and called him to be an apostle of the good news. Do you think his conversion sat well with the persecuted Christians? Not so much. When Paul stumbled into Damascus blinded by the light, nobody would believe his story, not even faithful Ananias when God appeared to him and told him to go pray for Saul, that his eyes would be healed. Wait, wait a minute, God. Are you sure you've got the right guy? Don't you know what a terror he has been to your people? Don't you know he's come here to destroy your church? So when rumors of Paul's conversion trickle back to Jerusalem, the leaders are skeptical. They think he's a spy. They're scared to death of him. Luke writes, when Paul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the, the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he was a disciple. Enter Barnabas. Barnabas vouched for Paul. Luke writes, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. The son of encouragement reconciled Saul with the wary leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Do you think that was a courageous thing for him to do? I think it was a very courageous thing. You know, encouragement sometimes takes courage. Why did he take a chance on that guy anyway? Because Barnabas believed that people can change. He believed people ought not to discourage others on account of their past. He persuaded the apostles that Paul's testimony was for real. Imagine just for a moment, if there had been no Barnabas at that point, how easily Paul's future ministry could have been truncated and, and marginalized by fearful, unbelieving apostles. Imagine the letters of the New Testament that might never have been written. Let's see, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Timothy, Titus, you get the idea, a lot of it. Even Hebrews, maybe, although some historians believe Hebrews was actually written by Barnabas. We're not sure. Imagine if Barnabas hadn't been willing to be open-minded, to believe the best in Paul and not the worst, and to stick his neck out for him. 
because that's what encouragers do, you know. They believe the best about people. He kept his eyes on what Paul could become with the grace of God. Do you think that was an easy move for Barnabas to make? I don't think that would have been an easy move. But it was essential. And what a difference it made. Because of Barnabas, God's church was able to flourish. Nine years passed. Many Christians in Jerusalem moved away to escape persecution. They were scattered everywhere. And everywhere they went, they shared their faith in Jesus, but mostly only with the Jews. However, there were a few from Cyprus and Cyrene that went to a place called Antioch, and they began sharing the good news with the Greeks, and the church began to grow. Well, pretty soon the leaders back in Jerusalem got wind of this. This is just after Peter's visit to Cornelius, the centurion. And this gospel for the Gentiles deal is a totally new way of thinking, and the old way of thinking does not fade fast. So the church leaders decide they'd better check on things. They send Barnabas to Antioch to see what's going on. And isn't it providential that that's who they chose to send? I mean, what a pivotal decision that was, because he is an open-minded man, eager to see the good in things. what, What if they had sent a rigid man, all right? And there were still plenty of those in leadership of the new church there in Jerusalem. What if they had sent a man who was hung up on the traditions of the past and prejudiced toward anyone who wasn't a Jew? The Gentiles may may have been shut out. But God led them to send the man with the biggest heart in the whole church, the man who believed in everyone, who valued everyone, who encouraged everyone. They sent Barnabas. And Luke says that when Barnabas got to Antioch, he was glad and he encouraged them to remain faithful to Jesus with all their hearts. He began to work there. And pretty soon, even more people believed, and even more people joined the church. And it was there at Antioch that, that people first started calling these folk Christians. What a wonderful name. Christians. The church began to thrive. Barnabas' church began to thrive. And then Barnabas did something very surprising. Verse 25 of Acts 11 says that Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. The question is, why did he do that? At that point, this point, Saul was not the great missionary that that God had called him to be. He had not traveled the world. He had not written any letters. He was just Saul in Tarsus, his hometown, witnessing to his neighbors, maybe. But when Barnabas found him, it says he took him to Antioch. Why would a great, successful, strong leader like Barnabas want to share his growing church with another equally strong, potentially egotistical leader? Hmm? Well, maybe Barnabas went to Tarsus to encourage Saul. Maybe Saul needed someone to encourage him to become the man that God had called him to be. Maybe Saul needed a kick in the pants. So Barnabas brings him to Antioch, secure enough to to share his church and his success with one who would eventually eclipse him. Because in Acts chapter 13, a lovely thing begins to happen. 
In Acts 13, verse 2, the team is described as Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. His name comes first. But by verse 13 of that chapter, the team is described as Paul and his companions. See, Paul has begun to outshine his encourager. And yet Barnabas never breathes a word of complaint as the leadership and the glory, for want of a better word, shifts from himself to Paul. He was okay with that. This was a huge test of character. It takes a great person to recognize that someone else, especially someone younger, has God-given abilities and to encourage him or her to move ahead of you with your full support. Doesn't it? But this was Barnabas. He just continued to encourage Paul to be all that he could be. He was an encourager. How do we feel sometimes when we don't get the recognition that we think we deserve? When somebody else takes over, we're feeling like we're getting left behind. That happens, doesn't it? It happens to me. Sometimes it doesn't feel good. There's a story that's told about Dr. Charles Best, the man who isolated insulin. In fact, the story was told years ago at my wedding by the pastor who knew how important it would be that Colette and I avoid competition in our work of serving the church. He saw the potential in our characters for that. Yeah. Dr. Best worked at a huge research complex where he had to literally beg for a place to test his hypothesis. You'll never find it using your method, maintained Dr. McLeod, the brilliant director of the research facility. But Best was so sure that he was right that he begged and pleaded until McLeod finally relented and gave him access to a tiny lab under a stairwell where he could work. Best had an assistant who also believed in his hypothesis, and late into the night, the two of them would work, taking samples, running tests. One evening, while McLeod was in England speaking to a prestigious medical society meeting, Best's assistant ran a test and realized they had isolated insulin for the first time beyond a shadow of a doubt. He broke the news to Dr. Best, and Best wired the news on to McLeod in England. McLeod shared the discovery, and there was great rejoicing. The newspapers picked up the story and ran it on page one with the headline, McLeod isolates insulin. By the next morning, the Associated Press in America had picked it up. Best's assistant read the morning headlines with disgust. McLeod discovers cure for diabetes. He took the paper and he threw it at Best. But Dr. Best just smiled and said, Look, really doesn't matter who gets the credit. What matters is that the diabetic gets the cure. This was the attitude of Barnabas, son of encouragement. Didn't really matter who got the glory. What mattered was that the sinner got the cure. In Acts 13, the Holy Spirit directs the church to set Barnabas and Saul apart for the first missionary journey of the new church. And over the next few chapters, you can read reference after reference to their work in town after town. Barnabas and Saul did this. Barnabas and Saul did that. Saul and Barnabas. Saul and Barnabas. Over and over. Which really begs the question, what if there hadn't been a Barnabas? God knew. 
the Holy Spirit knew. For Paul to succeed, there would have to be an encourager to go with him, to have his back, as it were. And it was really tough work. They ran into all kinds of opposition. We know what Paul went through because in his letter to the Corinthian believers, he categorized the grim list. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, he wrote, in great endurance, in troubles, hardship, and distresses, in beatings and imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, unknown yet regarded, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and not yet killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich. That was Paul's experience. But notice the fifth word. We. We. While Paul suffered, Barnabas was right there in the middle of it with him. His clothes were torn. He was beaten and stoned and chased and screamed at and persecuted. And yet he remained by Paul's side throughout that entire missionary journey, enduring the price required to tell people that God loved them. And when the situation turned dreadful for Paul, as, as it so often did, Barnabas stood with him. And maybe he said something like, well, Paul, <laughs> that was pretty interesting. Let's be on our way and try again. Let's try again. Let's try again. Without Barnabas, there may never have been a Paul as we know him. But it wasn't only Paul and Barnabas. There was a third member of the team, a young man, a kid, really, probably a nephew of Barnabas, who went with them. His name was John Mark. He was there because Barnabas also saw the potential in him. And yet when the going got rough, Mark bailed. A third of the way through this missionary journey, he quit and left them, and went back home to Mama in Jerusalem. Later, when Paul thought they ought to make a second trip and retrace their steps to check on all the new believers and encourage them, Barnabas was eager to go. Only guess what? He wanted to take Mark with him again. Paul was having none of that. He saw Mark as a deserter, a coward, someone unfit for the hardships of evangelizing the lost. In Paul's view, Mark had no patience, no bravery, no self-sacrifice, no devotion. But Barnabas refused that kind of thinking. He stood his ground, believing in Mark in spite of what had happened. In his eyes, John Mark still had potential, even though he had made a mistake, even though he had failed. Barnabas saw the value in him. And you remember what happened. Paul and Barnabas argued, probably long into the night. The Bible says they had such a sharp disagreement, they parted company. Barnabas took Mark, sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas, headed for Syria. Imagine for a moment what that meant for Barnabas. He was the second face of arguably the greatest missionary team in all the New Testament about to set off on a second journey that would have electrifying results. Yet he willingly stepped back out of the limelight 
so that he could encourage an underdog, the guy who had fouled up. Barnabas once again lived up to his name. He couldn't bear to see young John Mark give up and fail to become the man that God had called him to be. And that's where the curtain comes down on Barnabas's life. From chapter 16 on, the book of Acts is all about Paul and Luke, Paul and Luke, Paul and Luke. Barnabas is never mentioned again. But his legacy lived on. If not for Barnabas, John Mark would likely have been lost to history. But in three footnotes to his story, we know that Barnabas was right and that Paul eventually realized that Barnabas had been right. Mark matured and rejoined Paul's team. In his letter to Philemon, Paul refers to Mark as his fellow prisoner. They must have been enduring hardships together again by then because they both ended up in prison together. In Colossians 4, Paul describes Mark as a cousin of Barnabas and says, If he comes to you, welcome him. And finally, as an old man near the end of his life, he writes to Timothy and he says, Do your best to come to me quickly and get Mark and bring him with you to me because he's helpful to me in my ministry. The junior helper who had once deserted Paul is once again helpful to the seasoned missionary. And of course, Mark eventually became a heavy hitter himself, the author of Peter's account of John's life, a book that we know as the Gospel of Mark, because of Barnabas, the son of encouragement, one of the great unsung heroes of the early church. So, does this church have any Barnabas people in it? Do you think? Has anyone encouraged you recently? Given you a gentle nudge to get you started in some ministry or to keep you faithful in it? Has anyone stood up for you when you made a mistake? Has anyone pointed to your future instead of your past? Has anyone thanked you for doing what's right, even though you might not be able to see a whole lot of results from doing what's right? Or persuaded you to persevere in doing good despite hardship. There are some people around here who have done that for me. And I am very thankful for them. Sometimes they send me a card and I keep every single one of them. We need Barnabas people in our lives. And we need to be Barnabas people. For those around us, like geese, honking as they wing their way toward their ultimate destination, encouraging each other to press on, to keep going, to not give up, to not slow down. So I'd like to challenge each of you to make the culture of this congregation into an encouragement culture. We've got to pay more attention to the things that help us stick together. We've just got to do that. And encouragement is one of those essential things. We need to be like the geese without all the mess. Encouragement is so essential. And without it, the church languishes. What if each one of us were to do this? Each Sabbath when we come in here, what if we were to look around and find somebody to encourage? 
somebody who's been working hard in what they do. Maybe they don't recognize how much they're even accomplishing. Somebody who may be having a hard time. Somebody who's, who's being tempted to pull back. Someone who's fouled up, but they're still valuable. Someone who does something for the kingdom, and we just think it's cool what they're doing. It's just a good thing, and it makes us happy. What if we were to tell them what they meant to us? And what if we were to do it by writing it down? I mean, verbal encouragement is good, but writing it down ups the ante. A written note attaches more importance to words of encouragement. It becomes a matter of record, and the words can be read more than once. They can be savored and treasured. Of course, note, note writing takes time, doesn't it? Did you know that even some of the most very busy, most important people in the world write notes frequently? I read someplace that President Reagan would sometimes write up to 10 personal notes of appreciation and encouragement every day. He was the president of the United States, for goodness sakes. Some say George Bush owed much of his success to his ever-present pen. Throughout his career, he followed up nearly every contact with a person he had with a written response, a compliment, a line of praise, a nod of thanks, something. His notes went out not only to friends and acquaintances, but to total strangers. One summer day, when Bush was, had invited some of the press corps to Kennebunk, where his summer home was, for a barbecue, the young daughter of Jack Sullivan, who was then the director of ABC's Primetime Live, he went swimming in the family pool, and she lost her tooth. Bush noticed Katie was crying, asked her what had happened. When he heard the story, he knew from his own kids what that meant. No proof under the pillow for the tooth fairy. No reward. He called for an aide to bring him a presidential note card imprinted with a sketch of the Kennebunk family home on the front. Bush made an X on the card, and he wrote inside, Dear Tooth Fairy, Katie's tooth came out right where the X is. It really did. I promise. Signed, George Bush. <laughs> and that little note fulfilled the best prerequisites for inspirational note writing. Short on verbiage, long on empathy. And it dried little Katie's tears. Katie is a grown woman today. I bet you she still has that note of encouragement. I bet you she could sell it on eBay for a pretty good price. Some of you may have noticed that in the pews today are encouragement cards and envelopes. Each pew has at least four different cards with their envelopes. There are also pencils in the pew. Today we will take the first step together in building an encouragement culture in our church. What we're going to do for the next five minutes is this. Ask God to bring someone to your mind to whom you can offer a word of encouragement. Do that right now. Just ask God, who is it? Who is it, God? Who can I encourage? And then take a card, and if you're in a pew with more than four people, just get, get one from the pew in front of you or behind you. That's okay. Write a little note, two, three sentences maybe. Put it in the envelope. Put the person's name on it. From now on, we're going to have these, these cards in our pews. And when we run low, we're going to order more. We're just going to keep the pews, the pews full. Maybe writing notes of encouragement can become one of our Squim Church Sabbath traditions. We can make encouragement 
a way of life, like Barnabas made encouragement a way of life. He was a great man. But the same parakletos, the same Holy Spirit that prompted him to encourage others can prompt us to encourage others. And we can do that. It's not hard. We can become sons and daughters of encouragement. So you're going to have five minutes. I'm going to just set my little timer. And when five minutes has passed, I'll get back up and invite the musicians to come and we'll sing our closing song. Think of someone that you might encourage and take the time to do that.